the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We are talking guns today on the program, beginning with NPR investigative reporter Tim Mack's new book, Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. He'll tell us what made one of the most powerful lobbying interests in U.S. history into a shell of its former self. Then we're going to talk about the gun control case that was heard at the U.S. Supreme Court yesterday and what it might mean for the Second Amendment. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you are with us. The National Rifle Association's stranglehold over firearms laws and regulations has ensured for decades that America is a nation of guns. There are more guns than there are people in the United States. And it's the NRA that made sure that lawmakers in Washington, D.C. and in state capitals all around the country don't pass laws that might jeopardize that reality. But in truth, the NRA's influence has been declining in recent years in some pretty significant ways. And in his new book, Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA, NPR investigative reporter Tim Mack gives a detailed account of how the largely grassroots organization has begun to crumble under the weight of bad decisions, mismanagement, and a changing public perception of the gun issue. Tim Mack joins us now to talk about it. Tim, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. So let's start with this. How did the NRA become such a lobbying behemoth in the first place? When I think of lobbying interests in Washington, D.C., it's hard to come up with another organization that I think had as much influence, as much power uh, as the NRA seemed to. Well, I think it's it's true that the NRA has millions of very passionate, passionate members. Uh, at last count, probably around 4.9 million members. And what the NRA has been able to do is create a sort of implicit threat that if you cross the NRA, these members are going to light up lawmakers' phone lines. They're going to be um, just hitting a lawmaker inboxes. They're going to be showing up at town halls, and they're going to really make a real big stink about it in in uh, when it comes to members of Congress. And so they've been able to mobilize their base quite effectively for many years. And that has changed in recent years. There have been lots of stories about the missteps that were made inside the NRA, uh, but but it's also true that the influence that the organization wields is is different today than it was just a few years ago. Talk about what happened and what that change looks like. Well, the NRA right now is facing probably the biggest challenge and crisis that it's faced in some 150 years of its existence. It's got members revolting. It's got members of its board of directors revolting. It's got serious financial challenges to the, to the extent that um, in 2018, they almost couldn't make payroll hmm. with its staff. And they've got numerous investigations into their misconduct, including most urgently the New York Attorney General's investigation into uh, misspending, uh, self-dealing, and other sorts of misconduct that have happened at the or at the NRA. Uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James has filed suit in court accusing the NRA and top executives of more than $60 million of inappropriate spending over just a few short years. And right now, a judge is in the process of deciding. They're in court deciding whether or not the NRA should be dissolved entirely 
as a result of some of this alleged misconduct. And so what happens to those millions of adherents, the the members of the NRA, if the organization itself were to go away or were to continue in a really hobbled fashion? Uh, Obviously, this is a nation that, that really respects and in some ways loves the idea of the freedom that we associate with gun ownership and gun sales. Uh, what, what would happen to those folks if the NRA imploded literally and, and went away? Obviously, those people don't disappear, right? They, they continue to exist and uh, create that implicit threat to lawmakers that I discussed earlier. They'll just be less organized, less easily mobilized, um, but they'll still be there and they'll still be monitoring politics just like all of the rest of us monitor politics and have our own views about what is the right direction for policy on all sorts of matters. Uh, But I think what's interesting about the NRA is that it's kind of been for so long been this kind of black box. We've only seen from the NRA what it's wanted to project out into the public. Mm. And what Misfire does, what this book does, is that it pulls back the curtains for us to get a better understanding of the personalities and the players here. Uh, Wayne LaPierre, for example, he's the executive vice president and CEO of the organization. There's deep, deep study into who he is as a person. We can kind of talk a little bit about that if you like. Yeah. Um, he, he's he's someone who's deeply anxious and, and weak-willed and almost, you know, you talk to people who know him really, really well. And he's, they describe him as almost cowardly, which is really kind of interesting, right? That the head of the NRA one of the most powerful and controversial organizations in the entire country is led by this uh, kind of um, person who really disdains uh, controversy and is deeply anxious about confrontation. I'm talking with Tim Mack. He is a Washington investigative correspondent for NPR. He's also author of the new book, Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. We're talking about what he unpacks in that book, Uh, about the profound change in the organization uh, of the NRA itself, uh, its influence over lawmakers and gun policy, and what comes next as a judge is prepared to decide whether to dissolve the NRA, the organization, altogether. Uh, We'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. What do you think of the NRA? Are you somebody who considers yourself either a member of the NRA or a supporter of its advocacy in Washington or in Lansing. Uh, Do you believe that there is a significant place for guns in our society and you would like to see that place protected? Or are you somebody who supports more gun control measures and maybe is a little frustrated with the influence that the NRA seems to have over lawmakers. Uh, give us a call and let us know uh, what you think about what's going on with the NRA. In a little bit, we are going to talk uh, about the Supreme Court case that was heard yesterday that is uh, about uh, gun rights and uh, gun access. Uh, we're going to talk all all program today about, uh, about the gun issue. Uh, so give us a call. Let us know what you feel about gun rights, gun advocacy, Uh, gun lobbying. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today uh, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Tim, before we get to listeners, I do want to talk about uh, what you uncover about Wayne LaPierre, the NRA CEO, uh, I, I think it's fair to say you don't pull any punches when you describe uh, Wayne LaPierre. You write uh, he's a man driven by fear and anxiety over all other forces, and his reaction to these emotions is usually to flee and hide. Why is it so important to understand who he is, to understand the larger point that you're making here in the book? So the book starts with this scene at Wayne LaPierre's wedding, and he doesn't show up. And, um, you know, the, the ceremony is supposed to start, and he's not there. The, the best man says to Wayne, I don't think you should get married today either, and puts a, a $100 bill on the dashboard of the car and says they could drive away. Wayne doesn't really want to get married. 
but he ultimately is talked into it by the bride and the priest. And why, why, why that story is important and why Wayne's character is important is that for decades, Wayne has allowed himself, driven by anxiety, to be talked into all sorts of projects, whether that's millions and millions of dollars for top NRA contractors or really very lavish, extravagant um, golden parachutes for NRA executives who leave the organization but are still paid handsomely in order to do almost nothing. For many years, people realized, people that are powerful inside the NRA, realized that if you yell at Wayne LaPierre long enough, he doesn't have a strong enough constitution to be able to push back and will eventually say yes to what you ask. And that's led to so many of the problems that exist inside the NRA today. Hmm. Uh, and you write that the murders at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newton, Connecticut, quote, changed the trajectory of Wayne LaPierre's life and the National Rifle Association uh, forever. Talk about how Newtown really affected uh, Wayne LaPierre and the NRA. Well, it's, it's a real pivot point for the organization that after that, um, in, in the failure of gun safety legislation, uh, which ultimately fails in Congress, um, the NRA decides that it's much less interested in reaching out to Democrats and uh, moderates than it used to be and focuses almost entirely on reaching out to Republicans and conservatives uh, and embracing this kind of culture war approach in order to gin up fundraising and membership counts. Now, this works for some period of time during the Obama era, but it really comes to a head when Donald Trump is elected. Because ironically, although the NRA was a major, major force in the election of Donald Trump, it is kind of the start of the end for the NRA, because mm. when Donald Trump is elected, fundraising drops precipitously, right? Because the NRA has always done better in years when a Democrat is in power mm. and they can say to their members, oh, your gun gun rights are under threat or, uh, you know, the, the Democratic president is, uh, is interested in taking away your guns. So when Donald Trump is elected, all these financial problems begin to pop up. And so do all these reports of corruption inside the organization, they start to bubble up because there isn't enough money to silence them. Um, I wonder also, uh, so Big Neo on Twitter says, shall not be infringed. Those are the keywords to the NRA and Second Amendment supporters. One problem they are having is that those words don't apply to all citizens in America. The NRA will rush to white folks' defense when weapons are involved, but they remain silent when it's a person of color. And I guess, Tim, I wonder what dimension you think that problem is maybe playing with the NRA. I think that's related to some of the things you were talking about with regard to the election of Donald Trump uh, and and the decline in financial support uh, for the NRA. This, this idea of who the NRA is advocating for and who they won't stand up for. Uh, Philando Castile, for instance, someone who was a black man who was killed by police uh, while legally having a gun on his person, didn't get a lot of support from the NRA. And lots of people, I think, are starting to question that kind of, that kind of double standard. Yeah, there was a lot of criticism, even among NRA members, that the Castile case didn't meet with more support from the NRA's top executives and their leadership. The NRA barely said any anything at all after the uh, video of the, the Castile shooting uh, came out uh, and after a verdict in which uh, a police officer was not convicted in, in, in his death. The NRA has not been vocal about the case. And so I can understand why your listener feels this way about it. And uh, you know, a lot of this relates to what I was saying just a few minutes ago or a few seconds ago about how the NRA has embraced kind of conservative culture war approach after mm -hmm. Sandy Hook. It's become a conservative institution uh, to the detriment of reaching out across the aisle and building a broader uh, bipartisan or kind of trans ideological coalition. So I also wonder what you make of the change in 
sort of the American sensibility around guns, or if there is a change in the American sensibility around guns, it's also affecting the NRA. I mean, this extreme position that essentially opposes almost any attempted regulation of gun sales or gun access or gun ownership seems more out of step, I guess, with what most people probably believe at this point than it did maybe 10 or 20 years ago. Is that one of the things that is confounding the NRA right now? Yeah, I mean, the, the NRA has really kind of decided to go in one direction and not not build a broader coalition. Um, you know, it, what's interesting about this book is that it really goes deep inside the organization. I mean, it was it was based on, you know, my investigative reporting was based on uh, more than 120 interviews with people inside the NRA and its universe of vendors and, and people affiliated with it. And a lot of those people wouldn't be talking to me unless they felt that the NRA was in deep, deep trouble. And uh, they're concerned about what would happen if the current leadership pursuing the strategy it's currently pursuing and engaged in the kind of misconduct it's been accused of over the last few years, whether that the organization can survive. Um, I also wonder if you think there's a way for the NRA to regain its power. You noted that there's a judge who's going to make a decision about whether to dissolve the organization altogether. If that decision is to not dissolve the organization, could it regain the support that it had, the financial support that it had? Could it uh, craft more stable leadership and become the same force that it had always been? This really relates to the first question we had that you asked about in our conversation. And I think that the NRA's greatest asset is, of course, the millions of people who identify as NRA members. And those people stand, you know, they're still there. Uh, and, and whether the NRA as an organization collapses under the weight of some of their alleged misconduct, uh, if the NRA were to have new leadership or were to be reorganized in some way, they will still remain a potent force in American politics. They're in an incredibly, incredibly weakened state at the moment. Uh, and ha- there's an incredible threat to their future viability. But I, I don't discount that they can continue to be a force in American politics if things are turned around. Hmm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Steve in Detroit. Steve, what's on your Hi, mind? how you doing? Hey, go how ahead. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, I just wanted to point out, you were speaking about the case with the with the black man uh, and being shot. And mm-hmm. uh, it just always, it always comes to mind for me that I believe those, the gun rights, has always had a, a racial undertone to it mm-hmm. uh, long after the British were gone and not returning uh, that, that that was espoused the gun rights were were, uh, um, were tied to slavery and uprisings, potential uprisings. And even in the modern day and age, I, I think maybe uh, race riots and you know, who's going to have what and, you know, people taking your stuff that you, you know, when, when you're short of uh, needs and, and goods and, and all. So, yeah. You know, that's an interesting point, Steve. And, and I obviously don't disagree. At the same time, we live here in the city of Detroit where gun ownership, private gun ownership is among the highest uh, in terms of the rate uh, of any city in America, you talk to black folks in Detroit, they are almost uh, almost as enthusiastic about the protection for gun ownership as the people who you're talking about, Steve, who I think uh, ha- have pushed gun ownership for uh, opposing opposing reasons, and so I, I think it's maybe a little more complicated than than to to just talk about the history, the imbalanced history of protection for African Americans. You, you you still do have this incredible culture in Detroit that is about gun ownership. Uh, uh, Tim Mack, I wonder what you make of that possibility going forward. If, for instance, the NRA wanes. And its influence, is there an opportunity to create an organization 
that does have uh, a broader appeal and uh, and does represent gun owners uh, across the political and demographic spectrum. Well, what's true is the NRA is the only game in town right now. Mm-hmm. That the NRA is so large that there's no other organization that w- it could possibly rival it, not even remotely, in finances, in organization, in political power. That right now the future of the gun rights movement in America is so deeply intertwined with what is happening with the NRA and its alleged misconduct, and whether or not you know the the ongoing court cases will lead to its dissolution entirely. I mean, there's so much riding on these, you know, the legal process right now and what happens to the top executives at the NRA. Okay, Tim Mack, Washington investigative correspondent for NPR and author of the new book, uh, Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. It was really great to have you here with us to discuss your book and the NRA. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to continue talking about firearms in America. We're going to have a conversation about yesterday's Supreme Court arguments over a New York gun control law, which could have major implications for gun rights more generally across the United States. We're going to continue to hear from you as well. Give us a call and let us know what you think is the current state of gun rights in the United States. Is it where you think it should be? Should there be more restrictions? Should there be fewer? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. The U.S. Supreme Court could decide a case this term that would have major implications for gun rights and gun control measures going forward. Yesterday, the court heard arguments in a case challenging New York State's law that limits the right to carry concealed handguns. The central question in the case is how far state and local governments can go when regulating an individual's ability to carry a gun outside the home. Here to talk about the case and its broader implications is someone who has studied these issues quite a bit. Eric Rubin is an assistant professor at Southern Methodist University School of Law and a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice who focuses on criminal law, legal ethics, and the Second Amendment. Eric Rubin, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, thanks so much for having me on the show. So uh, let's start with some background on this case and why it has made its way to the nation's highest court. Sure. So this this case involves uh, a law in New York State that requires anyone to um, who, who wants to carry a concealed handgun in public to receive a permit. In order to get that permit in New York, you need to show proper cause, which means some heightened need for self-protection that separates you from the general public. In other words, saying that you simply want to carry a handgun concealed because you might get attacked by a stranger is an insufficient reason in New York. Um, And therefore, you need to show something more, like that you've been stalked or that you carry a lot of money for your job or something like that. And the challengers in this particular case, um, which is an NRA affiliate as well as two individuals, um, think that that requirement of showing a heightened need for self-protection violates the Second Amendment's right, which they view in a more unfettered way, in a way that allows you to, in essence, carry a handgun virtually anywhere, so long as you're not otherwise disqualified from owning a gun. And to, to put this in kind of more, uh, I, I guess, more lay terms, really the question here is whether your gun rights, your individual gun rights, which the Supreme Court has already decided that we have, and that was a pretty uh, significant change in in gun law interpretation when, when that happened. But uh, the, the question here is, 
does that right, that unfettered right to own and have a gun extend beyond your own home? In other words, uh, much of the understanding of the Second Amendment and what it protects has been about people's homes and and their their protection of their homes and their protection of themselves in those homes. This really asks the question, how far outside the home that un, unbothered right uh, should extend? Am I, am I right in, 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 in interpreting it that way? Yeah, yeah. So, so you're completely right that at the Supreme Court, at least, um, the focus in the past couple decades has been on the right to have a handgun in the home. Um, the big case there is a case called District of Columbia v. Heller from 2008. And that was the first time in the United States history that the Supreme Court struck down any gun law on the basis of the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. And that case involved a ban on handgun possession in the home in the District of Columbia. And the court decided that the Second Amendment right, which mentions prominently a well-regulated militia in the first half of the right, is not primarily about the militia, but rather is about private self-defense. And it struck down the District of Columbia ban on handguns in the home, saying that at its core, self-defense is much most acute in the home and somebody has a right to possess a, a handgun in the home, so long as they don't, they're not disqualified by a past conviction or something like that. Um, so, so that case only dealt with gun possession in the home. And even though it was a major case, a major Second Amendment case that had massive implications and brought a lot of litigation that I'm happy to talk about, um, there were only two places in the country that had a ban on handguns at the time. So the immediate implications of the law were not that profound. This case is go- could have more um, uh, far-reaching implications right off the bat because about 80 million people live in places that restrict public carry of handguns in the same way that New York does. And moreover, carrying guns in public has, has externalities, can affect other people more than simply possessing it in the home. So this is a major Second Amendment case. Hmm. Uh, also talk a little about the, the, the court itself and the ways in which uh, precedent looks different in the context of gun rights and Second Amendment than it does in in terms of other things that the court deals with. And what I'm getting at there is that there, you mentioned there is so little actual Supreme Court precedent to hold uh, justices uh, to, to to any kind of standard with regard to the to the Second Amendment. It just hasn't been. Uh, ruled on in, in explicit terms uh, a, a lot of times. And so when a case like this, uh, which has a substantive question about gun rights at its core, gets to the court, really, in some ways, it's a question of first impression. And that allows, I think, for a, a broader set of possibilities in terms of the interpretation among the justices who happen to be sitting on the court right now. Is that is that right as well? It is, and it's highly and it's a highly significant point. I mean, Heller, the 2008 case, is younger than the first iPhone. Mm-hmm. The right. Second Amendment <laughs> is getting developed in our lifetimes right now, and that sets it apart from things like the freedom of speech, which started getting unpacked by the Supreme Court early in the 1900s. And and this is significant in terms of constitutional development and what the justices can do in a case like this for the same reasons that you were saying, which is that if you're dealing with a free speech issue, um, you the, the court, which is bound or which which is um, which which tends to follow its past precedents, has to navigate through dozens and dozens of cases and is bound by the precedent in a way that it's simply not when it comes to the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. Because there's so little Second Amendment law, the court is writing on a blank slate. And that means that it has a a, a massive um, ability, a great ability, to set the the trajectory right now for what the Second Amendment will mean for decades and decades to come. Yeah, it's an incredibly powerful 
position that these nine justices are sitting in with regard to, to, to gun rights. Uh, I'm talking with Eric Rubin, assistant professor at Southern Methodist University School of Law and a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice who focuses on criminal law, legal ethics, and the Second Amendment. Uh, we're talking about the Supreme Court oral arguments on Wednesday of this week uh, that took a look at a New York law that has a heightened requirement for people to be able to uh, obtain a license to carry handguns outside uh, of their homes. It's a pretty significant Second Amendment case. Uh, It could uh, really change the face of the law, not just in New York State, but in every state in the union. Uh, We would love to hear from you during this conversation as well. Uh, What hopes or fears do you have about the future of gun laws uh, as they are in the hands of this particular Supreme Court? Uh, Are you somebody who is hopeful that they will bring about an era of fewer gun restrictions? Uh, Are you somebody who is worried that they might bring about an era of uh, fewer gun restrictions? Give us a call and let us know uh, what your thinking is about the current state of Uh, gun laws in in our country, a country uh, in which there are more guns than there are people right now. I think all the time that is a really fascinating statistic that tells us an awful lot about the American character. Uh, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there. Uh, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. As always, we also want to hear from from gun owners. Uh, why do you own a gun? Uh, what do you think about the rights that allow you to own that gun? Are they sufficient to protect your gun ownership or your gun purchases? Uh, give us a sense of how you f- think you fit into this scheme of uh, Second Amendment rights and the regulation that many people think needs to be a little tighter uh, to make sure that guns don't fall into the hands of people who will do criminal things with them. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Zoe in Ferndale. Zoe, welcome to the show. Good, thank you. Good morning, Stephen. Hi. Uh, I wanted to say I am typically for stricter gun control laws, but also there are a lot of laws on the books that are not always enforced, often due to lack of resources. One of the things that really interests me is that in some states, you know, someone might commit a crime, be convicted, then they wouldn't be able to purchase a gun there, but that state doesn't talk to another state, so they might cross lines. And then someone who shouldn't have a gun gets one legally, and oftentimes it's people who do have past convictions or past history of violence to then go on to commit even greater violence. So I think we should, before we do anything else, focus on making sure that we're enforcing the laws that are already in effect today. Mm. Uh, Great, great point, Zoe. I'm glad you called and and made that. Uh, Eric Rubin, respond to what Zoe's talking about here. The uh, the, the enforcement of current laws is one of the things that's in jeopardy here in this in this case this is uh, this is a law that that um, that could be struck down and that would affect laws in in lots of other states yeah so i mean zoe makes a great point that it's it's important not only to just as a policy matter not only to write good gun laws but also to then enforce them after the fact um, and a lot of times too much attention goes into the, the process of passing the law and not enough follow-up into actually how they get enforced. And I think that one great example of this um, is the mass shooting that happened in Sutherland Springs, Texas, where I am, where there was an individual who should have been disqualified from owning a firearm because of a conviction while he was in the Air Force. And the Air Force never uploaded that record into the, the federal database. And so he was able to go and buy a firearm and then shoot over 20 people at a church. Um, so it, it's absolutely important to plug holes in the enforcement. Um, and it's also true, like Zoe said, that some laws are over-inclusive and that they're, 
um, targeting people who probably don't present much of a threat and under-inclusive and that they're missing others who could be dangerous with a firearm. Um, the main issue with this, with this Supreme Court is that a lot of laws that are on the books, there's, there, there could not even, there might not even be an opportunity to focus on enforcement because if they run afoul of the Second Amendment and they're deemed unconstitutional, then they're simply struck down. Um, so this, this case does have implications, not only for the passing of laws, but our, our opportunity to enforce them and try to save lives. Mm. Uh, again, Zoe, really appreciate the call uh, and the, the thoughtful insights there. Before we go back to listeners, uh, Eric, I do want to talk about the oral arguments yesterday uh, and what you made uh, of those oral arguments. It's always a little dangerous to predict the outcome of cases based on oral arguments because there's a lot of things going on there that uh, are not literal, I think. Uh, and, and a lot of times the justices are actually talking to each other as opposed to talking to the lawyers. Uh, but, but give us a sense of how oral arguments went and what you took away from them. Yeah, so as you say, it's always hard to predict how these cases are going to come out until an opinion is filed. And this opinion will probably get filed um, in, in, in the summer, in June sometime. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, it seemed to me, listening to the two hours of oral arguments, that a majority of the justices are skeptical about the New York law. And in particular, the discretion that it affords to the licensing authorities who are deciding whether or not somebody can get a permit. Um, that should be a reason for gun rights advocates to be optimistic about the outcome. Um, but there were a lot of difficult questions that came up during oral argument. And, um, and, and there's likely to be a lot of nuance in whatever decision they, they issue. Mm. So it seemed, for example, that none of the justices voiced any support for a Texas style permitless carry scheme where you don't even need a license to carry a gun in public. Um, and, and that just raises the question, well, okay, well, if New York's policy goes too far and, but you can still require a license, what are the requirements that you can impose on the license? Can you impose a training requirement, um, a background check, which is the, the, the state of things in Detroit and in Michigan. Um, and, and beyond that, what sorts of restrictions can you put on where to carry the gun? There are a lot of questions. Um, Justice Barrett brought up a couple times, carrying the gun, can you carry a gun into New Year's, in, into Times Square on New Year's Eve? Um, the, the question of, can you, if you strike down New York's, New York's law, can you restrict the carrying of guns into bars and into subways? And the attorney for the NRA affiliate, Paul Clement, refused to give any ground there. He wouldn't. He didn't say that it would be permissible. He didn't agree that it would be permissible to restrict guns on New York City subways. Hmm. And I think that if, if New York's law gets struck down, it's just going to raise a host of new questions about how else you can restrict the public carrying of um, of handguns. Hmm. Yeah, uh, Paul Clement, uh, a name that is. Of course, very familiar in Supreme Court circles uh, was the Solicitor General of the United States, uh, I think, during the second Bush uh, administration and is a very skilled advocate uh, at the Supreme Court. He, he wins an awful lot of, of the time. Um, OK, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to continue this conversation uh, about the gun case at the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll also continue to hear from you about your feelings about gun laws and gun restrictions, whether they are too strict uh, or too permissive. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter. Put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you've joined us. My guest is Eric Rubin. He's assistant professor 
at Southern Methodist University School of Law and a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice. His focus is on criminal law, legal ethics, and the Second Amendment. We're talking about the oral arguments on Wednesday of this week at the Supreme Court over a case uh, out of the state of New York that poses the question about whether state regulations uh, that require uh, some some heightened uh, criteria uh, in order to carry a handgun outside uh, your home are in conflict with the Second Amendment. We're talking about the Second Amendment uh, and gun rights generally, what you think about the state of gun rights. Are you somebody who thinks uh, we have uh, too many gun laws in this country, or are you somebody who thinks we have too few. What do you expect this Supreme Court uh, to? Uh, what do you expect the Supreme Court to do with this case? As always, the number here on the phones is three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag uh, Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, what's on your mind today? Uh, hi, Stephen. Um, hello to the professor. Um, so I was wondering if we could use as the main criteria um, if a person lives or works in a high crime area, um, which, of course, is absurd because we shouldn't have high crime areas in one of the richest countries in the world. Um, but if that could be the criteria, uh, with some exceptions, like the professor mentioned, somebody that's been being stalked or carries large amounts of money for their work. Um, but if that's that's just it, that's, oh, you're carrying a gun because of this reason. Hmm. Uh, great question, Melissa. What, what was the discussion, uh, Eric, about the possibility that that the New York law perhaps goes too far in terms of establishing criteria and is unconstitutional for that reason, rather than the kind of blanket idea that any criteria for carrying a handgun outside the home might be uh, in opposition to, to, to their, your constitutional rights. So this is an area of the oral arguments yesterday that I found quite fascinating. And it seems that there is disagreement or there might be disagreement amongst the conservative justices who want to um, who who seem poised to dial back New York's gun law. Um, the, The question really is whether or not gun regulation can constitutionally vary depending on what part of a state or what part of the country you are in. Historically, and history matters a great deal to these justices, historically, cities regulated firearms more strictly than rural areas. Hmm. Most of the gun regulation was in places um, that had higher population density because that is where crime is a, a, a bigger deal. But as Melissa mentions, where crime is a bigger deal, arguably you should have more of a means to defend yourself. And this got this was played out in the oral argument yesterday. And um, and, and one thing that surprised um, me and I think other commentators was that Justice Thomas, seemed, who, who generally is in favor of robust gun rights, seemed to be open or at least to be considering the possibility that this case doesn't need to decide whether or not gun rights are as expansive in cities because the two plaintiffs in this case are from Rensselaer, New York, which is a much more rural area than New York City itself. And he was asking questions along the lines of, do do your clients, he was asking questions to Paul Clement, um, do your clients need their guns to go into New York City? Is New York City even at issue here? And, And the answer was no, it's not. Now, on the other side, Justice Alito was asking questions about the um, the person who has to walk through dangerous neighborhoods in New York City and how they might have a greater need to protect themselves. Hmm. So it's, 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 an, it's an issue that will be really interesting to see how they come out um, because I could see it going both ways. I could see this case it, consistent with the historical tradition of regulating more strictly in cities um, to allow cities like New York City and Detroit more leeway when it comes to deciding for themselves what laws will keep them safer. Mm. Um, 
or I could see it go the other way and emphasize the security needs in high crime areas. Yeah, yeah. Melissa, great question. Really glad you called uh, and asked that. Let's go to Mark in Redford Township. Mark, welcome to the show. Stephen, good morning. Hi. Uh, my discussion goes beyond the uh, the right to bear arms, I think, the perspectives around that. First of all, I want to say that the right to bear arms is predicated on a, as the founders noted, is predicated on a, um, um, a standing army. But the problem I have with gun ownership today, I think, is, is that um, the caliber of the weaponry that's being allowed to be circulated mm. and... You know, the police are threatened by this. They would say so themselves. And I think there needs to be more regulation in that regard. Uh, that's an interesting point, Mark. And and it's not at issue in this case, but the question of handguns versus other guns is one of the things that kind of lies at the heart of what the justices are considering. This is about Handguns. Correct. It is not yes. about. Uh, it is not about other things. Eric, I wonder what your response is. Yeah, you know, I I think uh, first, Stephen, your listeners are great. They're asking fantastic questions. <laughs> I think Mark's question gets at something really important here, which is that weaponry has evolved a great deal since the founding era. Um, in 1791, when the Second Amendment was enacted, handguns comprised much less than 10 percent of the overall weaponry. Hmm. Muskets were muzzle loaders, which meant that you can't carry them around loaded because they could misfire, and it took a, a fair amount of time to to load them. And after you shot once, um, you, you basically were, were had to redo the process. And in a typical self defense situation, that just meant that firearms were less useful for self defense and less useful for crime. Um, today, weapons are firearms are much more lethal, and one of the things that's interesting in this case is that uh, the courts seem to be inclined, you know, at least four of the justices, maybe a majority of the justices seem to want to say that the constitutional constitutionality of today's gun restrictions um, will turn on whether or not they're analogous restrictions in the earlier part of the hmm. American history. And one of the challenges that you get in that situation is that the weapons were different back then. Um, Mark mentioned caliber size. Caliber is a massively important indicator of how lethal and dangerous a, a gunshot wound will be. Ask any ER doctor. Um, and uh, so the weapons were different. The security needs were different. So how do you analogize restrictions on, you know, carrying, uh, storing black powder in your house to modern safe storage requirements? How do you analogize historical weapons to modern weapons like tasers, which are arms, um, or, or pepper spray or things like that? And how do you draw comparisons between AR-15s and these old weapons? So, you know, it, it, to the extent the court seems po um, interested in, in basing its constitutional law on history, it turns into a difficult question of historical analogies. And I think that's one of the things that Mark's getting at. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a listener on Twitter, uh, Jack, has a really interesting question as well. He says, how can the Supreme Court justify ruling one way on states' rights to regulate abortion and perhaps another way on states' rights to regulate guns? Of course, the uh, abortion issue was also at the, the Supreme Court this week and is swirling around this this Texas law that is uh, incredibly restrictive, of course. Uh, I, I think for a lot of people, it's confusing when the court does one thing in one area of American life and does another in a separate area. Eric, I wonder if you can help Jack understand how that happens and, and whether it makes sense. Well, it's Jack's question's a, a, a good one, and it depends on how cynical you want to get here. Um, <laughs> so the abortion right recognized in Roe in, in 1973 um, and refined through the years is on the court's docket this year, and a lot of people think it's going to get dialed back, if not straight out overturned. Um, in, and the upshot of that would be that states have the ability to regulate abortion more strictly. And on the flip side, you've got the Second Amendment right, um, which 
the courts in, in the justice yesterday were saying is getting underprotected and needs more protection. We have to limit the state's ability to regulate it. It's hard to ignore the ideological shift that has happened on the court um, over the past four years when you're considering these questions. The justices are talking about the right to an abortion as if it's getting overprotected and needs to get dialed back while they're talking about gun rights as if they're under assault, despite the fact that um, Americans have the highest rate of civilian possession of firearms in the world. Um, so ideology could play a role here. Mm-hmm. I think that the flip side of it, what they would say is that the Roe case was wrongly decided from the beginning. Mm-hmm. There is no express right to an abortion in the Constitution, and there is an express right to keep and bear arms. But that's overly simplistic. I think it's hard to ignore um, the, the ideological uh, positioning of the different justices and the different methodologies that they want to bring to bear, especially mm. how, how wedded they are to looking to history to decide today's questions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Eric Rubin, uh, assistant professor at Southern, Mes- Southern Methodist University School of Law and a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice. It was really great to have you here for this conversation today. Thanks so much for stopping by to explain this to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me on. Anytime. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to look at how single-family zoning laws have driven inequality and segregation in America for a really long time. Really interesting conversation online for tomorrow's show. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producers are Nora Ryan and Sam Corey. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. And Sam Bobian was running the board for today's show as well. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.